Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Second one is, is we've got this uh, Kennedy event coming up. I mentioned it uh, a couple weeks ago um, that we're going to do uh, as a way for us to serve together as a group and serve the body and bless the body. It'll be a really fun thing that, that we can do. Uh, for the church. It's kind of like what we did a couple of years ago when we did the single mom's brunch. I'm not going to mention the period when we did that, but um, similar. But this time what we're going to do is uh, we're going to do a planning giving for, for the whole church. So whoever wants to come, you know, uh, we started doing uh, Bless Fest. And, um, and since we're doing Bless Fest, we haven't been able to do the Wednesday night Thanksgiving dinners uh, that we normally have the night before Thanksgiving as a church, we just hang out and spend time together and eat some food. So we thought, hey, it'd be great to, to, to provide something like that for the body. Um, so we're going to have a, a Friendsgiving. It'll be, I believe, November 12th. Um, so we had a little bit of time, but that's good. We have been praying about it. We're going to need help. So anybody that is free and, and wants to help uh, would be really appreciated. Um, and uh, I think it'll be a great time. So uh, be praying about that and mark your calendars so you uh, don't double book. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Now we're going to get into saving faith. Um, let me pray for us and we'll uh, jump into the study. Father, I just thank you that we have this opportunity to be together. Uh, uh, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than with your people, talking about your word, celebrating your son. Lord, and, and, and I just pray that this would be uh, profitable, Lord, that we'd see your son lifted up and we'd, we'd just be drawn to him. We'd, we'd see his glory, his splendor, and, and want more of him, Lord. That's that's the whole purpose that we're here for, Lord. So I, I pray that that would come to fruition, Lord. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, Lord, that you would help me. I, I need as much help as you could give me, Lord. And ultimately, that you would be our teacher tonight. I pray that you would instruct us in the way that we should go. You would edify us. You would encourage us. You would comfort us. You would be our God tonight. So we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, we're studying uh, the essential doctrines and practices for the, the church today. And we're using what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith as our guide. The Westminster Confession of Faith was written a few hundred years ago. And what it was, was it was kind of like a creed-type deal where the uh, the churches got together and they got their smartest people, their best pastors and theologians together, and they spent some time and said, hey, what are the essential things that Christians need to believe and the essential practices that the churches need to do to be orthodox, to be Christian? And they took great uh, pride and detail in these doctrines, and they would define them, and, and then they would have these kind of creedal statements or these uh, confessions that, that told people exactly what it means to be a Christian and, and help people to have right orthodox thinking. And, uh, and and so we're kind of using this as a guide. We're not necessarily teaching the theology that's behind it, but uh, we're using it as a guide today to, to accomplish the same thing. So what are the major doctrines and practices for us? We want everything uh, that the Lord has for us in our personal lives, and we want to glorify Him the best as we can as a church. And so we're using our this as our guide to, to learn about that and to do that. 
And we're in the part now where we're talking about uh, redemption, and specifically the redemption applied, how redemption is applied to the sinner. 2,000 years ago, Jesus purchased redemption, right? He died on a cross. He said, Ketelestai, it, it is finished. And redemption was purchased. Redemption was finished at that moment. Everything that was needed for salvation was accomplished. It was done. But it needed to be applied to sinners' lives in real points and real places and times. And for 2,000 years now, God has been doing that. He's been saving sinners. He's been taking people that were alienated and hostile to him, and he's been taking that work that Jesus did and applied it to their lives and, and changing them, making them saved. And we've, we've talked about different aspects of this. We've talked about effectual calling and how that differs from the general call. The general call goes out to everybody. God calls everybody to come to the cross. But because of the nature of man, because natural man is hostile to God, he has to actually pull somebody to Jesus. He has to pull people to the cross so they get saved. That's why in John 6, Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws them or drags them to me. That's like a sexual call where he, he, he's bringing people to Jesus. right? And, and then we've uh, talked about regeneration. And, uh, and, and now we're getting into the saving faith. What is this faith that uh, God causes us to be born again, to be regenerate? And, and, and you start sanctifying it, but, but it comes through faith. And what does this faith look like that God is, is putting into us and giving us? That's what we're talking about tonight. So we're in saving faith. And the first point I want us to see is not all faith is created equal. So fill in the word equal. You know, if you look at the epistle of James, remember James, he's the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was the, the first uh, bishop of Jerusalem. He oversaw the, the church in Jerusalem. And in his epistle, if you read it, he speaks of three different types of faith. He speaks of uh, dynamic faith, which is uh, saving faith. It's true faith. It produces fruit. He, produced, uh, he speaks of dead faith. Right? He says faith without works is, is dead. It, it, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't produce anything. It's just an empty concession. And then he also speaks of what's called demonic faith. He says that even the, the demons believe and shudder. So he speaks of these three different types of faith. You know, it's interesting. In the Gospels, it's always the demons that are the first ones to recognize Jesus. It, 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 and to recognize who he is and to confess who he is. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, it says this, When he came to the other side of the country, of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? before our time. These two demoniacs that had legions of demons in them, they knew exactly who Jesus is. The religious people had no idea that Jesus was the Son of God. But the demons are saying, hey, we know exactly who you are. Are you here to before our time? At the beginning of the, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, he goes to his hometown of Capernaum. And in Mark uh, 21, verse or 25, it says this, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. 
just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. How about Matthew chapter 13, right? Jesus gives this parable. And he talks of a, a farmer who sows seed. And as he sows seed, he scatters the seed. It falls on four different types of soil. Uh, some of it falls on what's called the wayside. And remember what happens to that. The, the birds of the air, which are a picture of demonic forces, come and just snatch it away. Nothing ever happens to it. It's kind of like the guy who's sitting there in church as the pastor's preaching, and he's just daydreaming. And the word never even goes in. It never penetrates the heart. Nothing ever happens with it. Some of it, though, falls on soil, but it's, it's hard soil. It hasn't been tilled, and, 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 and it can't go deep, right? It, it penetrates the ground, and it sprouts up right away, but the sun comes out, and it scorches it, right? And Jesus says that that soil, it, it, it's like the trials of life. It's like persecution that comes, and, 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 and people just give up. Yeah, it's too hard, and they get scorched out. They get burnt out. Some of it, though, falls on what's thorny and uh, 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 soil. And, and it goes down, and, and it starts, it sprouts up. It looks like it's the real deal. But the thorns and, and the roots just start choking it out. And Jesus says, that's the same as the, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. That's the person that, you know, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. And then, you know, not too long after, they get distracted by worldly things. They start going after a career or a guy or a girl or something like that. And next thing you know, they're not following Jesus. But then there's this one ground that's the soil's been cared for and it's perfect soil and the seed falls on that and it goes down deep and it germinates and it produces a healthy plant that produces fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Well, could you guess which one of the four is Satan feeding? It's the last one. It's the one that produces fruit. So we see that not all faith is the same because out of those four, three of them made a response. Three of the four soils, something happened. The, the plant started. But out of those, only one of those was saved. Not everyone who confesses Jesus belongs to Jesus. It's kind of sad, you know, when uh, at an altar call, like uh, at the Crusades, uh, it's about 5% of the people that actually come forward actually have saving faith. Within five years, they're still walking with the Lord. Right? So there is a lot of counterfeit faith out there, we need to recognize or realize the reality of the make-believer. So fill in the word make-believer. You know, we tend to think that there's two categories of people, right? That there's the believer and the unbeliever. Well, there's actually three categories of people. There's the unbeliever, the believer, and then there's the make-believer. The person who says they're a believer, but they aren't a true believer. They're not a true follower of Jesus. They're a make-believer. This person is described in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus, he comes to Jerusalem for the feast, and he drives out the money changers. He, he goes into the temple. He flips the, the tables. He clears the temple out, right? He says that my father's house is a place of prayer. It's a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And then he restores the temple back to its original purposes. People start coming in. He starts healing people. He starts preaching. He starts casting out demons. God's house was a place for 
for hurting people to come and meet with God to be healed. He, he restored it perfectly through that. And this is what it says in John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. It says, Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting, literally not uh, believing himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. They're coming to Jesus, and they're saying, I believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but I don't believe in you. I know your heart. Your, your heart isn't right. You're only after me for the things that I could provide for you. You don't really want me. You don't want, you don't want you know, to give up your sin. You, you, you don't want to have a relationship with me. You just want to be healed. You want to be entertained. You want to be blessed by what I could do for you. And then we get a great picture of this in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, they, they go up and, uh, and, and this crowd comes and, and Jesus is there and he, he feels compassion for them because they're hungry. They have a need. And so he takes this little boy's lunch, this little, I call it a first century lunchable, and, uh, and, and he blesses it and, and starts gives it to the disciples, and they start distributing it. And he feeds 20,000 people with this little boy's lunchable. And then the next day, this crowd's coming back, and they're like, hey, Jesus, that was pretty good. And maybe you could do that again. You know, we kind of like that. We didn't have to buy food. You just made food for us. And then in John 6, 26 and 27, Jesus says this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. And then he, he, he goes on to say this at the end of the chapter in 61 through 57. This is such a great illustration of what we saw in chapter 2. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with another, one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the blood which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said this saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come 
to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So here, just in this one passage, we have the contrast between the believer and the make-believer, from someone who's genuinely saved and someone who's genuinely deceived. In verse 66, we have the make-believers. They walk away because Jesus doesn't give them what they want. He doesn't, you know, give them the fruit. He doesn't produce fruit like they wanted them to. But then in verse 68, we see that the disciples are true believers because they remain. Peter confesses that Jesus has the words of eternal life. You see, the make-believer, the false convert, is always after the benefits that God can provide for them. And the genuine believer is seeking after God himself. Right? We, we, we want God. We want to be as close to God. And everything else is, is, is gravy. That's why it says, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will be accounted for you. But the make-believer has it backwards. They want all the benefits that God can provide, and if they come into fellowship with God, then that's kind of the bonus. So we see here that there, there's a reality that there are people who make professions of faith in Jesus who aren't truly saved. Right? Matthew 7.21 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. But how do we know which one's which? How do we know we have saving faith? How do we know we're not deceived like those folks in Matthew 7? Well, first we need to understand what faith is and what faith isn't. So fill in is and isn't for letter B. Let's start with what saving faith isn't. You know, sometimes when we're taught to define something, that helps to start with what it's not. And by seeing what it's not, it kind of helps us to see what it is, to make that point. So saving faith is not positive thinking. Saving faith is not growing up in a Christian home. Saving faith is not merely participating in some religious experience or ritual. This includes altar calls. Like I said, only 5% of the people that go up in an altar call actually remain walking with Jesus five years later. Statistics have shown. Even being baptized isn't a sign that you're a genuine believer. Last week we talked about how Acts chapter 8, there's this guy Simon Magnus who hears Philip's preaching. He responds. He gets baptized. But when Peter and John show up there in Samaria, they find out that he isn't saved at all. Taking communion doesn't save anybody. Going to church doesn't mean that you're a genuine believer. Paul says in the Corinthians, he says that, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's in the church. Satan's in pulpits. So just going to church doesn't mean that you have genuine faith. Even believing the right things are true about Jesus and the church doesn't save anyone. Right doctrine doesn't save you. 
if you look at the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, they were the ones that were probably the most right on theologically. Yet, they hated Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. Right? They were the, the object of Jesus' scorn. They, they weren't saved. So what is saving faith? What does true saving faith look like? Well, Hebrews gives us a definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? It's, a, it's a good definition of faith, but is that what saving faith is? When I was taking the pastor's school, handful of years ago, Carl Westerland, he, he taught one of the classes, and he was real big in definitions and making people memorize definitions. And his definition of faith was the ability to hear God speak and respond appropriately. I think that's a great definition. You see, because the, the, the natural man, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, can't understand the things of God. They can't discern it because they're spiritually discerned, and the natural man doesn't have the spirit of God. So the natural man isn't able to hear God speak to them, much less then respond in an appropriate manner. But saving faith allows us to hear God speak, allows us to hear the gospel for what it is, and then respond in an appropriate manner to confess Jesus as Lord. The Lexham Survey of Theology defines saving faith this way. Faith is the knowledge of, the trust in, and commitment to Jesus Christ that is required for salvation. Uh, you know, R.C. Sproul, I believe, rightly defines four components of this initial saving faith. We're going to get a quick little lesson in Latin here, too. The first one is noticia. Noticia. This speaks to the, the contents of the faith. This speaks to the things that I believe. This speaks to the, the knowledge that is needed to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is why we go out and preach to unbelievers, because there's certain knowledge one must understand before they could actually put their faith in Jesus. First, you have to know who Jesus is. You have to know that he came to earth 2,000 years ago, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for us, that he rose again, that he ascended to the Father. This is all notitia. This is knowledge that you have to have to have saving faith. The second component is what's called essentia. And this goes beyond simply knowing facts. Essentia is the conviction that these facts are true. This is the conviction that you come to when you realize, hey, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a hostile to God, and I'm under the wrath of God, and I need a Savior. I need Jesus to save me. So there's notitia, then there's essentia. Thirdly, there's what's called fiducia. This is where we get the, the, the term fiduciary from. This speaks of responsibility. In our context, we have a fiducial is, is placing personal trust and confidence in Jesus Christ as our Lord. Right, so, so we know the facts, we're convicted of the facts, and now we're actually doing something about the facts. We're placing our, our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And there's a fourth element. It's called affection. Once we do those first three, our affections start to change. You go from a hater of God to a lover of God. Someone who's indifferent to the Word of God to someone who gets their spiritual nourishment from the Word of God. Someone who goes about their life lackluster, like God doesn't exist, to somebody who lives their life for the glory of God. You see that your affections change. 
Suppose there's a fire in the upper room of a house. As the people gather in the street below, a child is seen in a window of a room next to the fire. The trucks are at least five minutes away and will so be too late to help. How is the child to escape, people are saying. Now suppose that in the neighborhood lives a large man, well known for his strength and his athletic ability. How'd they know I live in this city? He arrives at the scene and he shouts to the child, drop into my arms, don't be afraid, I'll catch you. It is one part of faith for the child to know that the man is there. It's another part of faith to believe that the man is strong and able to catch someone. But the essence of faith lies in dropping down into the man's arms. See, faith actually moves. Faith actually doesn't. Faith is an action word. Letter C, let's get into the characteristics of saving faith. What does saving faith look like? Number one, saving faith needs to be a personal faith. So fill in the word personal. You know, this is a, a, at least a couple of the Gospels begin this way. Begin with the need for a personal faith. In the Gospel of John, it says this. Here, they're in the prologue, the first uh, handful of, uh, of verses. In verses 11 through 13, it says, He came to his own, the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here John says, who were born not of blood. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It didn't mean that you were in the kingdom of God. It also didn't matter which family you were born into. It doesn't matter how godly your parents are. Right? Everybody needs their own faith. Adam and Eve, they had two kids was righteous and one wasn't. Each kid needed their own faith. Abraham, the father of faith, he had two kids. He had Ishmael and Isaac. Right? One was saved, the other one wasn't. Isaac had two kids, Jacob and Esau. One became Israel, meaning governed by God, and the other is described as a profane man in the Bible. So you, you see, if, if if you could get in by your parents' faith, then how come both your kids need that? Because you need your own personal faith. And, and, and throughout the Bible, there's only been one way to be saved. There's only been one way to be right with God, and that's through personal faith in God. In Habakkuk 2.4, it says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Genesis 15, 6, uh, Abraham, he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. But Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. In Hebrews 11, 4, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Hebrews 11, 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Hebrews 11, 7, by faith Noah, being one by God about things not yet seen and reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Hebrews 11.8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. 
he went out not knowing where he was going. See, these are all Old Testament examples of how you needed personal faith to be saved. You know, sometimes when we're reading the, the Gospels, I think we forget something. I think we forget that that was actually the Old Covenant that they were living under. So this guy Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he's like the top dog in Israel. He's like as good as you could get in Israel. He's at the top of the religious side. You know, he's, he's, he's a Pharisee. He's in the Sanhedrin. He's the third richest person in all of Israel. He's famous. He's got it going on. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. Personal saving faith is absolutely necessary. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Nobody's going to get into heaven with somebody else's faith. You have to have your own. Point number two, saving faith is supernatural. Saving faith isn't natural. It's not something that just happens. It's not something that you can produce for yourself or produce in yourself. It's a miracle that God has to work in you. You know, we've covered the nature of the fallen man. Fallen man is, is totally depraved or radically corrupted. This means that they're not only not willing to be saved, but they're un, not even looking for salvation for themselves. They're incapable of, of saving themselves. They're not looking for salvation. And it says this in Romans 3.11, There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Like a sinner might be searching for the benefits of God, but they aren't searching for God himself, at least not the God of the Bible. Again, you want to prove this? Go out and try to evangelize someone and say, hey, you want to know my God? You want to follow my God? All you have to do is this. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then live like Jesus did. See how many people say, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, sign me up. Right? It's not going to happen. Nobody wants the God of the Bible. They want what the God of the Bible can provide for them. Therefore, if someone's going to be saved, God has to do something to the sinner. In John 3, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, you must be born again. That word again, it's the Greek word anathen. And it literally means to be to be born from above, to be born of God. It comes from heaven. It's a supernatural birth that comes down from above. It's a supernatural work that God performs. And throughout the, in the Bible, uh, saving faith is described as a gift from God. Even our, our, our faith is a gift that comes from God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul says it is a gift of God. Well, what is? Well, if you use traditional hermeneutics, or, or just its syntax for that matter, uh, the, the closest antecedent to the word gift would be the answer. And that's faith. Faith is the gift of God. 
some say uh, they argue this, and they say that the, the, the gift isn't really faith, but the, the gift is grace. Well, that's kind of redundant. What other type of grace is there? Or they say it's salvation. Well, even if that's true, all, all three of them are a gift of God. God gives us salvation, God gives us grace, God gives us faith. And I wouldn't be so dogmatic about it if there wasn't another verse in the New Testament that said the same thing. In Philippians 1.29, it says, For to you it has been granted, it has been given, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. It's been given to you to believe in Christ. God's given you a gift of faith, of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for Christ's sake that you're going to believe in him. You see, the truth of the matter is that our faith that we have in Christ was given to us by God. This is one of the reasons that we have security in our faith. God is not an Indian giver. He's not going to give you something and take it back. In Romans 11, it says that the gift and calling of God are irrevocable. He's not going to take it away. Saving faith is supernatural. It's not something that a sinner could produce for themselves. It's something that God gives to the sinner. Point number three, saving faith requires a full commitment and submission to Jesus. A full commitment and submission. Luke 9, 62, Jesus says this. He says, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, it takes a full commitment. You've got to be all in. You've got you, you to be committed. You've got to say, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm not going to look back. I ain't going back. I'm burning the ship. There's only one way forward, and that's with you, Jesus. John 3.16, a verse we all know. For God so loved the world, he gave us, or gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's a, a, whoever believes in, there's this, this preposition, in, right? It's the Greek word ice. And, and it can mean in, but it can also mean into. We need to believe into Jesus is the idea. I came here in a truck. Imagine if I said, I have knowledge that, that trucks exist and that they can transport people from one place to another. I have uh, knowledge that my truck could get me to church to where I could go, that church is within distance, but a truck could travel. And I have knowledge in how to turn on a truck. I have knowledge to operate a truck. I could know all these things. I could believe that these things are true. But is that going to get me? here? Is this going to get me to my destination? No. I actually have to get into the truck <laughs> to get here. Otherwise, it's not going to do me any good. You know, Noah and his family, they actually had to get into the ark. Standing next to the ark wasn't going to do anything. Building the ark wasn't going to do anything. They had to actually had to get into it to be saved. You see, you can't be half in Jesus and half out of Jesus. You're either in him or you're not. And to be in Christ takes a full commitment. First Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Well, we're taken from being outside the body of Christ and we're placed into the body of Christ. 
right? You can't be in and out. You're either in the body of Christ or you're not. Imagine a man wanting to marry a woman, but not being truly committed to her. It's like, yeah, I'll marry her, but you know, I, I'm still going to watch pornography sometimes. I'm still going to have these girlfriends over here. That doesn't work. That's not what marriage is. Marriage, by definition, is a commitment. And we are the bride of Christ. So we need to be committed to our Savior's death. But we also need to be submitted. Romans 12, or 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So to be saved, you have to confess Christ as Lord. It's the first part of that. Did you know Lord is the number one way God identifies himself in the scriptures? Over 6,800 times he reveals himself as Lord. In Exodus, Exodus 3, Lord is given to Moses as the covenant name of God. Moses asks God, hey, what's your name? Who do I tell him? Send me. And, and, and he says, I am. Tell him I am sent you. Just like you've done. It's literally Lord. Lord is, is, is Yahweh. You know, God's a lot of things in the Bible, and they're all wonderful. But the fact that God chooses to reveal himself as Lord more than any other title shows me that he first and foremost wants to relate to us as Lord. He wants to be Lord of our life. You know, you can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. The two go together. Imagine you knock, or imagine I knock on your door, and you say, who's there? And I say, Joe. And you're like, I like Joe. But Joe who? And I say, Joe Mama. No, I'm just kidding. I say, Joe McGuire. You're like, I don't like McGuire. He's a jerk. Joe can come in, but McGuire can't. I, I, I know that sounds silly. That, that, that's pretty stupid. But in a sense, that's what we're doing when we say we want Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. Only part of you could come into my life, Jesus, not all of you. Did you know that in the book of Acts, this is the early church. This is, this is the, the church getting started. This is, this is the church that was living the closest to Jesus. In the book of Acts, Jesus is called Savior twice. You know how many times he's called Lord? Ninety-nine. The very first Christians had a creed. Today, but throughout church history, creeds have been a big thing. They state what we believe. The, the Westminster Confession is a type of creed. But this, this, the early church, their creed was pretty simple. You know what their creed was? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Hakirios. Jesus is Lord. Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We love that, right? And then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. What's a yoke? Yeah, running one string through it. Some of you have your yoke I'm talking about. 
a yoke was a steering device for oxen. You see, the, the farmer would take this, this yoke, this, this wooden harness thing, and put it over the oxen, and then he'd be able to plow with the oxen. He'd be able to steer with the oxen. But what did it mean for an animal to take a yoke upon them? It meant that they were submitting themselves under the control of the farmer. Right? If they were going to go wherever the farmer guided them, essentially. But every now and then there would be an oxen that would be described as stiff-necked. This oxen wouldn't let the farmer put the yoke on his neck. It would shorten its neck like this. Those are stiff-necked oxen. When Acts chapter 7, Stephen, right after he became a deacon, he's preaching to the the Supreme Court of Israel. He's, he's, he's preaching to the, the council, to the synagogue, the, the, the Sanhedrin. And he's going through the, the history of Israel and showing them that Jesus is their Messiah. And it comes to the end of the preaching, and it says this. He says this, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Interesting. When we resist the Holy Spirit's convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment, we don't come under the Lord's lordship. We're being stiff-necked like those oxen that won't take that, that yoke upon us. But I'm here to tell you not to be stiff-necked. Commit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take his lordship over your life. Jesus says, not everyone who comes or says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say on me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Makes sense. Number four, saving faith is a living faith. It's a form of living. He talks about James. He says, faith without works is dead. But why is saving faith a living faith? Well, because it grows. In Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus says this. Uh, he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. But truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Why did Jesus choose to use the metaphor of a mustard seed here? Was it because of the size? Did Jesus use a mustard seed because it is so small? There's a smaller object he could have used. He could have used a grain of sand or something like that if he wanted to stress just how small your faith had to be. You see, he used a mustard seed because it's alive. And the fact that they're alive means that they're going to grow. A mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds that there are. And when you plant it, it turns into one of the biggest plants that there is. You see, our faith may start small, but the longer we walk with the Lord the bigger it's going to get. Saving faith is going to grow. A 
genuine faith isn't about perfection. It's about progress. It's about growth. I think a, a great picture of saving faith or our salvation is the children of Israel conquering Canaan. You see, God could have just given them the land without any enemies in it, but he didn't. He gave them the land, but he told them to go in and fight and drive out the enemy. And as they did that, as they had one victory after another, their faith in God grew and grew. That's because they thought God was with them, that God was fighting for them. He was leading and directing them. He was providing for them, and he was protecting them. God was the perfect husband to Israel, and because of that, their faith in God continued to grow. You see, one of the ways that we're going to know that we have real faith is we're going to see our our faith grow. We're going to grow in our desire to be with God. We're going to grow in our ability to hear God. We're going to grow in our ability to see what God is doing. We're going to grow in our ability to be directed by God. Number five, saving faith includes repentance. Repentance is absolutely necessary because repentance and faith are, are two sides of the same coin. You see, I can't turn to God unless I turn away from the world. Right? If, if I'm facing Sarah, I can't turn to the TV unless I turn my back on Sarah. That's the idea. Right? I, I, I can't turn and face the Lord unless I turn my back on myself. God. So repentance requires a change. Repentance is literally metanoia. It means to to change your mind. But it's more than that. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change of will. You see, it's not enough just to repent of a a specific sin. You'll just commit a different sin. You see, the problem isn't so much that somebody drinks or somebody fornicates because you could stop doing those things and still go to hell. The problem is is that we are sin. Sin is who we are. That's, that's what we're made of. That's, that, that's the, the natural man's disposition. And so, so we literally need to repent of, of ourselves, of, of who we are. David says this in Psalm 51.5. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He had a, a sinful nature. And then once he was born, he went about life proving that he had a sinful nature. And that's why there needs to be a total repentance, a change of the mind, a change of the heart, and a change of the will. What was John the Baptist's message? Right? Repent. John the Baptist appeared preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 1.4 says. Matthew 3, 1 and 2 John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message, repent. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The apostles preached repentance. In Acts 2, uh, the Pentecost happens. The, you know, the, the, they start speaking in tongues. There's the sound of a mighty rushing wind, there's tons of fire on top of their heads, and there's a crowd walking by, and they're like, man, these people are drunk, like, what's going on? And Peter gets up and he starts preaching and telling the Jews that they crucified their Messiah, and they'll cut to the heart, 
And they said, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, and as many as the Lord your God will call to himself. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 13. He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you don't repent, you're going to perish. You ain't getting to heaven without repenting, is what Jesus is saying. You know, this call to repentance is not a suggestion. It's not a tip. It's not good advice. It's a command. God commands everyone to repent. To not repent is to be disobedient to God. Paul says this in Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all that all men everywhere should repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So saving faith is always going to be accompanied with repentance. It's impossible to exercise saving faith without repentance. Number six, saving faith is triumphant. Tell me the word triumphant. First John 5, 4 says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith is triumphant over the world. And it's triumphant because the fact that it cannot be lost. You know, a, a believer will never become an unbeliever. I like what, what Dr. Stephen Lawson said. He says, the faith that fizzles before the finish line had a flaw from the start. A faith that finishes before, or fizzles before the finish line had a flaw from the start. What about those people, though, that, that we know that, that confess Jesus, they start coming to church, and they're enjoying it, and then all of a sudden, they walk away. They, they, they stop coming. What about them? What about people like Charles Templeton? Do you guys know who Charles Templeton is? Charles Templeton was a contemporary of Billy Graham. And they, they, they both started doing crusades at the same time. You know, they crusaded together. And most people said that Charles Templeton was the, the better preacher. Billy Graham was kind of the sidekick to Charles Templeton. After decades of doing these crusades together, Charles Templeton said he decided that he, he didn't want to believe in God anymore. He wanted to be an atheist. So sadly, he, did, he died apart from Christ. He died an atheist. First John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For had they been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that they would be shown that they are not all of us. Saving faith endures. Jesus says, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. It's the endurance that proves that we have saving faith. You know how I know that saving faith can't be lost? Jesus, or Paul says this in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began a good work. 
How do you do it? Effectual calling, regeneration, gifting that saving faith. And since he's given us saving faith, we have the confidence that he's going to perfect it. He's going to keep us all the way until the day of Christ Jesus, Paul says. Here's a great verse, John 5, 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, has passed out of death and into life. He says, He who believes or exercises saving faith, present tense, has eternal life. And by definition, eternal life can't be lost. Right? Because then it wouldn't be eternal life. It would be sometimes life. It would be uh, part-time life. But it wouldn't be eternal life. And Jesus says the one who believes in him possesses, already has eternal life. That's what Jesus promises from us then. Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the author and the perfecter of our faith? Well, it means he's the one that started our faith, he's the author of it, and he's the one that is going to finish our faith. He's the perfecter of it. From start to finish, our faith is from the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also, or with him, freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Here it is. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. See, nothing that's created is going to be able to separate you from the love of Christ that's in, from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You're a created thing. You can't even separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Point number seven, saving faith is dynamic. Find the word dynamic. Saving faith isn't a stagnant faith. It's never passive. It moves. It follows Jesus. In Mark 2.14, it says, Jesus passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Levi, he left the tax booth. That's repentance. He followed Jesus. That's faith. You know, faith is an action word. It really is. Imagine if I told you underneath my Bible here is an envelope with $10,000 in it. You guys really believe me. And I said, hey, the first one who comes up here and grabs it gets to keep it. 
You guys would get out. I mean, it would it would look like a royal rumble up here trying to get under my Bible to get that ten thousand dollars because you believed that that it was there for you to get it. You see, if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord, if we truly believe in who He is, there's going to be an action behind it. We're going to follow Him. We're going to obey Him. It's going to affect the way that we live. Saving faith is immediate. Put on the word immediate. You know, the second that someone exercises faith, they are saved. It's not a two-week process. It's not a two-month process. It's not, oh, you, you believe in Jesus, now you have to go through this catechism, or you have to learn this doctrine, or you have to you know, go through this class at our church, and then you can be saved. No, the second that you believe, the saving faith, you're in Christ. In Acts 2, in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together. And it talks about how they were baptized in the Spirit. They started speaking in tongues, and the passers-by started, Hey, they're drunk. And Peter got up, and he started preaching. At the end of Peter's preaching, it says this. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles and said, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to your children and for all who are far off. And as many as the Lord God would call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added 3,000 souls. The very day that it happened, Pentecost thousand souls were added to the church. They heard Peter preach, they believed, and they were saved. They were added to the church. It was immediate. Go down a few verses. In verses 46 and 47, it says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. God was saving people every day. Every day he was adding people to the church. As soon as they had saving faith, they were being added to the church day by day. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? Right? Philip is in Samaria. He's preaching, and he hears the Spirit of God say, Hey, go down to Gaza. So he leaves. He goes to Gaza. He has no idea why. Walking through the desert, and he hears some guy in a chariot talking. So he walks up, and it's this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip asks him, hey, do you know what you're reading? He's like, how could I know unless somebody tells me what it means? And so Philip explains Isaiah 53 to him, and, and, and he says he believes. And so they, he's like, well, what's to stop you from being baptized? Do you believe? Then you could be baptized. That day he was saved. He was added to the church. The very second that you exercise saving faith, you are saved. Our last point, saving faith affects all that we are. Saving faith is a comprehensive faith. Saving faith, it it involves the entire person. It, It involves the mind, the will, the passions. See, with the mind, we comprehend the gospel. Our passions or our heart is convicted. 
and we're guilty sinners. And with our will, we make a commitment. We place our, our trust in the gospel. It takes all of us to exercise saving faith. And not only does exercise, not only does exercising saving faith take all of our faculties, but once we exercise saving faith, all of our faculties get changed by our faith. Our mind is renewed, and we think good after saving faith. Our heart is changed, and we have new passions. Our will is no longer enslaved to sin. We can truly choose to follow the Lord. So saving faith takes all our faculties. It changes all our faculties. It affects all that we are. It's a comprehensive change. So we've learned some things about saving faith. And I prove that going through these, it just, I hope that as we went through these, it just proved to ourselves that we had saving faith. And it'll help us to discern saving faith going forward. So God, we thank you that you did save us. And at some point in time, you gifted us with this gift of saving faith, Lord. And, and may we live the rest of our life in our Lordship in a way that honors you, in a way that just says thank you for giving us that saving faith, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here. I pray for those that aren't. I pray that you bring them back. Some of them are sick. I pray you heal them. I pray that you just be with them, Lord. Bless them. I pray that you would speak to them and encourage them, Lord, and that they would just know that they are yours. I pray that you would confirm their saving faith to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.